Thank you for joining us for this conversation on global health innovation with Trevor Mundell, president of Global Health at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Catherine Cheney. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx focused on technology and innovation, and I'm thrilled to be moderating this event today. This event is part of a series of conversations on technology, innovation, and global health underwritten by the Novartis Foundation, and you can join and follow the conversation using the hashtag DevExNewsmaker. I should also note that we'll be sending a recording of this event to all attendees, so look out for that. And before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to provide just a little bit of background. Trevor Mundell leads the foundation's efforts to develop high-impact interventions against the leading causes of death and disability in low- and middle-income countries. He manages the foundation's disease-specific R&D investments in HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, pneumonia, enteric and diarrheal diseases, and neglected tropical diseases. He also manages cross-cutting product development programs, including discovery and translational sciences, innovative technology solutions, integrated development, and vaccine development and surveillance. More recently, of course, much of his focus has been on the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wanna make sure that we cover his work on COVID-19, but also these other areas, much of which have lost ground over the course of the pandemic and, and kind of what's next for global health innovation in those spaces. Prior to joining the foundation a decade ago, he actually celebrated his 10 year anniversary with the foundation last month. Trevor was global head of development with Novartis. I look forward to hearing from him about global health innovation from breakthroughs to challenges to what lies ahead and hopefully incorporating some of our audience questions as well. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be with you today. Great to see you. So I wanted to start with a question building on the Global Grand Challenges meeting last month, which the Gates Foundation hosted. And you were talking about how, despite the most successful development of novel vaccines in history, uh, and I'm quoting you here, inequity in distribution has handicapped our return to normal life. And that's something DevEx has been following very closely. And I wonder if we can start by having you expand on some of the primary reasons for the gaps in vaccine access and talk about what steps need to be taken to close those gaps and what can be done to ensure the world is better prepared next time? Catherine, as you say, you know, since the Grand Challenges meeting, um, a lot of thought and analysis into that exact question, which has really, I think, transfixed the, the global health community looking at this tremendous disparity in the allocation and uh, distribution of vaccines. Uh, we've been particularly looking at the uh, situation in Africa. And clearly the global supply chain as it existed in the aspect of it, which was to ensure a robust supply into all regions of the, the world didn't work out well. And of course, nobody foresaw this particular pandemic. So there were a lot of actions that were taken at the outset that were intended to anticipate some of the issues that we felt would be there. There was the institution of the multilateral effort called uh, COVAX, which was put together under the ACT-A umbrella very rapidly. There were some early investments in some of the manufacturing in India with Serum Institute. We had a partnership with Gavi and Serum Institute, a $300 million partnership to ramp up their production of two vaccines, the Novavax vaccine and the Covishield AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. So there was a lot of activity that was in place. And at one point in time, um, probably uh, early in 2020 or late, later in 2020, when we really became, uh, we had the whole aspects of the situation at hand, 
there was a sense that we would be able to supply about 2 billion doses to lower middle income countries throughout 2021. A number of factors occurred that uh, were unforeseen, but we know in this game of vaccine manufacturing and supply of health commodities, you have to not just have your plan A, you have to have your plan B and your plan C. And I'm afraid that we as participants in the global health community didn't have those plan Bs and those plan Cs. So when there was that terrible surge in India and the vaccines that were being produced were being used then for vaccinating the Indian population that led to some early deficits in supply. When there were unanticipated manufacturing issues with the Novavax vaccine, when J&J had some delays with their manufacturing, uh, th these were all important parts of that initial thought plan that would have launched those vaccines. And we just didn't have that plan B. So first of all, we weren't prepared at the outset, we had to put together, cobble together these various plans to ensure this global supply. And then we just didn't have the backup that was necessary when things went wrong, as you might have known they would have gone wrong, trying to predict uh, this very wily virus foe that we're facing. So you mentioned a couple of things I definitely want to return to and have questions on, including COVAX, including vaccine manufacturing capacity in low and middle income countries. But um, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, we're going to focus quite a bit on COVID-19. But before we get too far into that huge topic, I do want to make sure to talk about all these other global health priorities that are part of your portfolio. And, you know, the foundation has really shifted a lot of its focus, as has much of the global health community, to COVID-19 response. But what about these other priorities? And I wonder which of the priorities where you've really been overseeing innovation do you think has lost the most ground due to the shift of funding and focus to COVID-19? And what is the foundation's plan to try and reclaim some of those gains, recover some of that lost ground um, from pre-COVID-19 days? I, I think that everyone in, in the global health community you know, shares this focus on trying to understand where we've come and were there, have we really moved backwards in some important areas. It's pretty clear in some areas we have. At the very outset, I would say that uh, I've been amazed at how our partners on the ground, in fact, have been able to deal with the situation right through all of what's been going on with the pandemic. So, uh, you know, whether it has been supply of critical antiretrovirals, whether it's even been completing the conduct of critical studies, you know, important study, which indicates the efficacy of single dose HPV vaccine was conducted right in the midst of, or completed right in the midst of the pandemic. So there has been this tremendous effort and awareness that we have to get bed nets out, we can't have a delay. But there obviously have been breakdowns in the system. The malaria numbers, which uh, we believe have really uh, been appropriately adjusted, the 650 million deaths we have, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, seem to indicate maybe 70,000 of those might be attributable to the uh, COVID situation. It's not absolutely clear where we've come with um, HIV and availability of antiretrovirals, another critical aspect, but they, that would probably work out over a longer time frame. I'm really concerned with tuberculosis, both in South Asia and in Africa, uh, because that has become, you know, aside from COVID, the number one global health killer, 1.5 million deaths a year. And uh, we do have troubling anecdotes of you know, cases rising and or lack of 
diagnosis, lack of case finding just within these circumstances. And then we hear every day about the food insecurity. So the epidemic that we have of malnutrition, particularly of infants, mothers, uh, that no doubt uh, is really likely to, to worsen in some ways. So it, it's quite interesting that we have this very apparent pandemic. And then we had those somewhat silent to the global community epidemics, which were always there. We were very acutely aware of them within the global health community. And I do fear that some of them have at least hit a plateau. And in some cases, we have evidence uh, regressed slightly. I totally agree. And in fact, as a journalist, one of the things that I like to see is when the media is shining a spotlight on, as you call them, the silent epidemics that still need action, but are often struggling to get that funding and focus while much of the world is focused on uh, the threats of the pandemic. Um, I do wanna shift gears to COVID-19 and perhaps we can return to some of these other global health priorities when we talk about just kind of the status of global health innovation broadly. But you mentioned COVAX earlier, and I assume most of our audience members know about COVAX, but for those who don't, this is the vaccine arm of the global partnership known as the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator or ACTA. And COVAX has in many places, in many circles been criticized for failing to deliver on its promise to vaccinate the world. And I wonder first, if you think that's a fair criticism and if so, what do you see as some of the main reasons for this? Some of the main reasons that COVAX has not worked out as planned and are there any lessons that COVAX can offer for future global health collaborations? Well, you know, Catherine, I, let me just put forward my view, my personal view, and I think the foundation support as well for the concept and the idea of having a coordinated multilateral response to a problem like this. So I, we think it is absolutely essential. You have to have this dealt with by both multilateral organizations and countries operating multilaterally. Bilateral interactions in a global problem with global supply chains doesn't make any sense. So I think that the intent and the idea behind COVAX is exactly right. It was put together very rapidly in the, the urgent situation. The funding was not pre-planned. So there was an issue initially with you know, raising the funds, which um, delayed some of the early investments. Of course, at that time, uh, there were a lot of bilateral deals that were done. So there was an issue of this competition. So COVAX was not placed early on to be highly competitive with all the early deals that were being done. So I think that can be obviously addressed by planning in the future to have that funding already available. And then, of course, what I referred to earlier around the plan A, so the COVAX plan A was a good plan, 2 billion doses at least would have been delivered in 2021. But um, with the rapidly changing circumstances on the ground, there wasn't a plan B and a plan C. And so when things, you know, went in a bad direction, we just were not able to uh, anticipate that. And by that time, with the supplies being already allocated, there was that huge gap which emerged. So, you know, you want to say there's a certain mere culpa in, of course, those things should have been anticipated. There was the urgency of the day. So I think whatever the missteps with COVAX, it is the right intent. And I have been impressed, though, with, you know, there were other organizations that really stepped up and filled some of the gap. <clears throat> the African Union, for instance, with its uh, African Vaccine Acquisition Task Force, 
you know, has been an important uh, gap filler uh, in Africa with supply flowing through that as well. So it's not, I don't want to say COVAX was the only entity and that initially, you know, got off to uh, a slow start. It's now catching up and it's going to be important for sure in 2022. There were a lot of other entities and important efforts that were going on to bolster this global supply. So a follow-up question for you here, um, and actually this comes from my colleagues who are behind our checkup newsletter at DevX. Uh, you mentioned that COVAX is catching up. It'll be important in 2022. And a question from my colleagues, do you think COVAX should continue as a permanent fixture in the global health architecture, or do you think it should be redesigned or replaced? Well, I think there's certain elements that people have looked at in the design of COVAX that they are you know, interested in, in addressing. Um, what exactly this would be named going future. As I say, I think the ideal of a multilateral entity to coordinate or certainly a, a strong multilateral coordination of the vaccine response is essential. The exact form of that is uh, a hot topic that's being debated you know, as we speak, and I'm sure will be debated still. Uh, and you know, hopefully we can have finality in the next couple of years, but I don't think we're yeah. there at that structure. But a COVAX-like uh, institution is I think what we need. Thank you. Another question uh, related to COVID-19 response. There's been some confusion, I think, over the Gates Foundation's stance on intellectual property for vaccines. And I wonder if you can clarify the foundation's support of a narrow waiver for IP in the context of a pandemic, which is something Mark Suzman has outlined versus the foundation's stance on IP more generally. Well, Catherine, we say fundamentally at the foundation, we do believe that an IP regime, which is implemented fairly and has got a strong focus on global access, is a huge generator of innovation. You can't get away from it. If you look at the, even the origins of the mRNA vaccine, and then you look at the fact that the access elements were not built into that. So we do think that it is possible to have a strong IP framework globally but to build into that framework the elements of global access. Um, I only you know, need to point to some of the, the interesting new developments there around the therapeutics, Molnupiravir mm -hmm. and Paxlovid, operating through the medicines patent pool, which is a voluntary license mechanism that provides generic manufacturers with the ability to take licenses and to make the product in a pretty expeditious fashion over there. It worked well with some of the early therapeutics, and I think it's going to work well. We've certainly committed to supporting that and seeing how we can make that work even uh, you know, more rapidly, accelerate the transfer of technology. So inherent in that medicines patent pool licensing and technology transfer is that, that aspect, that it's not just somebody can get a license or even somebody could ignore the IP and then just go you know, download from the internet some plans and implement them. Even in the small molecule area, which is a simpler area, it's, there are some complexities. And we've invested in synthetic processes. Our Medicines for All group you know, was able to simplify that dramatically, but that knowledge needs to be then conveyed to the manufacturer of note. And they need to implement it in a, a good quality manufacturing process. So it's complex enough with small molecules. Now let's go to vaccines. An order of magnitude more difficult in terms of the control of the process. A lot of the cost in vaccines is not actually in the substance itself, which often can be less than the cost of the vial that it's put in, but it's in that whole process control, which may have 57 
65, you know, a lot of different quality check steps that you need to ensure that this biologically fermented produced product is safe to go into humans and doesn't contain various contaminants or have untoward activity. So vaccines are a completely different issue to the small molecule area, already somewhat complex. So we've always felt that it was that issue of being able to have a tech transfer system that is the gap if you want to have second sourcing. So a very successful second sourcing was for the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, where the information on how to produce it was delivered very early on to Serum Institute, and they were able to get started at an early stage. That, that worked well. Having an IP waiver in and of itself will do nothing for that tech transfer. And people say, well, you know, you, you get teams that'll go around the world and do this tech transfer, but they're not enough teams, they're not enough vaccine manufacturing experts, you know, in the whole industry and on the planet that could facilitate dozens of tech transfers across multiple products at this point in time. Maybe we could fund something like that, but that's not available. So we didn't see a patent waiver as the principal way in which vaccine access would be increased. We could see in some cases a narrow waiver might make some sense for some specific elements of the system. Very helpful clarification. Thank you for that. And a related issue, uh, as you talk about technology transfer, is something that I know seems to be a growing priority of the foundation, which is democratizing global health R&D. So this was a big focus of yours um, at the Grand Challenges event that we mentioned. Um, talking about this need to democratize global health R&D. And I wonder if you can expand on what you mean by that, why it's so critical, and what exactly the foundation is doing, but you know, there are limits to what the foundation can do. So what's sort of a call to action for others in this space? You know, Catherine, this is a lesson that I, I really learned from the, the COVID um, situation. Just be prior to COVID, we'd uh, established this uh, Pathogen Genomics Institute in partnership with the African CDC. And that was meant to be 20 sites in Africa that would be sequencing pathogens. Uh, and that would be you know, distributed into the global data, databases of pathogens. So we could map, for instance, elements like the spread of malaria resistance or even trace individual malaria parasites, strains uh, through this. Maybe look at other aspects of uh, pathogen spread, HIV, even TB. That was there as a nascent enterprise, but then when COVID came uh, upon us, was able to quickly convert to sequencing for COVID strains, COVID variants. And suddenly we had this capacity, which otherwise might not have been there, to be able to do that. You know, early this year, there might have been 5,000 sequences from Africa, mostly from South Africa, in the GSA database. And within about 10 months, that had increased to 50,000. So a dramatic difference in being able to track variants. But that all came from having the infrastructure, the sequencing, both the materials, the actual machines, and those raw materials, starting materials, were in scarce supply. And the people able to implement that on the ground. You know, we could have as much sequencing as we like in the, the UK as being the foremost sequencer in the COVID response with a tremendously high amount of sequence information generated. That's great, and that's been important for some of the, maybe the early variants. But we would not have detected the beta variant in Southern Africa, nor this latest Omicron variant without that sequencing capacity on the ground. So it's very clear yeah. that there are many, many instances where you need to have scientific capacity 
both on the hardware side, but particularly in people and capacity on the ground where things are happening. I want to bring in a couple questions from our audience. And um, one has to do with a question I have for you as well, which is this need for boosting manufacturing capacity, specifically in low and middle income countries. So I wonder, um, first of all, why was that not such a big priority before? It seems like COVID has really highlighted the need for this. So, so why did it take until now for that to be a big realization? And um, what are some of the conversations within the foundation that have led this to be a bigger focus? You know, Catherine, I, I think it came out of some sort of honest uh, intentions here around prioritizing trying to get as many vaccines as possible out of the limited amount of funding available for vaccine purchase and distribution to lower middle income countries to as many infants and children as possible. So I, I do think that as a, as a global you know, vaccine providing funder and the community, we prioritized trying to get coverage as high as we could of these critical vaccines to kids. And we always knew, and you know, certainly our partners, UNICEF, and uh, you know, who look at the issues of procurement are very sensitive to supply security and always try to be sure that there is some security supply. You don't just have one manufacturer. But often given the choice, do we vaccinate more kids with a vaccine that we can afford? Uh, or do we really go down the path of being absolutely sure on the supply side, on the security of the supply? I think we may have you know, biased ourselves to the natural inclination, which I also have, get more kids vaccinated. So it's clear that that going forward can't be the, the only um, dimension on which we operate. That's a, the super critical dimension, but we have to think about supply security and now thinking about supply security globally. A lot of our activities, you know, we've worked with 19 developing country vaccine manufacturers over the last two decades. We've invested a billion dollars in those developing country vaccine manufacturers. Um, they operate in 11 countries and the 17 products have been brought uh, to the lower middle income countries through that uh, partnership. But there has been a strong emphasis on South Asia, you know, India, Indonesia have a critical vaccine manufacturing capacity and um, they've provided, you know, fantastically valuable vaccines. But now we need to really, you know, think about the, the global situation and regional uh, not just, um, you know, cover everybody, but cover everybody with the security that that supply will be there in times of urgent need like this. Great. I want to bring in another question from our audience. And I like this question because it, it moves us into uh, talking about not just the foundation's direct influence through its direct grant making, but also the foundation's influence in a lot of the global health architecture. You know, we've talked about COVAX, uh, but another good example of that is CEPI. Um, which for those who don't know, that's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. It was co-founded and co-funded by the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, and several countries. And here's the question from our audience. What are the pros and cons of CEPI expanding its remit to encompass diagnostics and therapeutics as well as manufacturing? And I guess another way to put it, since we're not talking about just the current state of global health innovation, but what's next, is this kind of a CEPI 2.0 and what might that look like? Well, Catherine, I think we very much are thinking about the CEPI 2.0, which we are you know, keen to support. And um, they've got some ambitious goals around funding that effort. 
But I, I would just go back to the origins of CEPI back in 2017 when it was established. And that was evidence of people paying attention to what happened with Ebola in West Africa and saying, let's try and prevent that happening. And it, it had an important aspect of CEPI, which was to complete the Ebola vaccine efforts, which it actually did take up. So what we saw with CEPI when the COVID outbreak occurred was it was able to jump in with its funding of roughly a billion dollars very rapidly and make some key investments. And I think a lot of the investments that CEPI made and a lot of the activities that CEPI has supported have been really unseen. So they've supported assay development. How do you know when a vaccine is effective? How do you compare two different vaccines? They've had a lot of investments into that assay development. It's, a, it's in the background of what goes on. But if you don't have that, then how can you compare a Pfizer vaccine versus a Moderna vaccine versus an AstraZeneca vaccine? So they've been supporting that and they've been providing that assay to the various vaccine manufacturers. They've been supporting clinical studies and the design of clinical studies. They're supporting studies now of let's say the inactivated vaccines, which have been used widely in lower middle income countries. What happens when you boost those vaccines with other vaccines? Nobody else is funding that kind of work. So CEPI was able to do this critical work in the background, not just the high profile you know, mRNA vaccine manufacturing and that R&D, but that necessary almost grunt work in the background that you need to have a successful enterprise. That is what I find the highest value of CEPI. So that enterprise uh, and putting all the lessons on the vaccine side into play. And I would go beyond vaccines because there's a natural affinity between vaccines and biologics writ large, so antibodies as well, which have been important in high-income countries. But as you know, you know, we had an effort at one point to try and introduce those into lower-middle-income countries, which for reasons of the variants and other issues didn't, didn't work out. But that's a very important rapid therapeutic tool. That can be put together with the vaccine package. I think the first order uh, of the day with CEPI is that we get that right, that infrastructure. So I think that you know, I wouldn't suggest that we would confuse adding diagnostics therapeutics until we get the first piece of this right. That could, that, that's maybe a future goal for CEPI, but right now we want to get the super important vaccine platform, vaccine manufacturing and ecosystem in the good shape that we need it. Great. I, I do want to just ask one more question. You know, we've talked about COVAX, we've talked about CEPI. Um, the foundation is also a major donor to the World Health Organization. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the foundation's influence ext extends far beyond its grant making. And I wonder, in your work on global health innovation, um, when the foundation is involved in so many efforts and backing so many efforts, how do we strike that balance of, you know, offering input or even promoting a particular approach while still encouraging others to come to the table, encouraging collaboration. I'd just love to better understand from your perspective on global health innovation, beyond direct grant making through these global bodies, how you kind of seize the opportunities, but also navigate the challenges of having big influence. You know, Catherine, the foundation has this tremendous privilege of having these resources that the, um, the co-chairs have committed to, to global health. And I, I feel a tremendous duty of stewardship in that those be appropriately used. And we have the ability to convene the best experts in any area. 
And I always feel that the strategies that come out of that should indeed be from the input of the best experts. Now, whenever that happens, you will always find that there's one good expert who somehow was left out of the loop. And that person will then point that out and say, this wasn't a totally, you know, a totally free and equal situation. And there's been important information. I'm always very interested to hear those orthogonal points of view that somehow the strategy that might've been convened and funded by the Gates Foundation is missing in some aspects. And, you know, I, I really would encourage people to make that known. And we should always be, keep an open mind that nothing is cost in iron. On the World Health Organization, and a super critical body for all of us, and we've seen this with, uh, with COVID, but underfunded by countries, tremendously underfunded. And the area of underfunding that most hurt us in global health was around pre-qualification, which was the regulatory process that many lower middle income countries absolutely rely on for products to come into their national territories because they have not been able to invest and they've not had the means to invest in a regulatory infrastructure themselves. So the World Health Organization is that thin barrier of quality assessment that we need, but totally underfunded. So we've put a lot of funding into improving that system um, in the sense of, you know, expert capacity at uh, the World Health Organization, affiliations with other strict regulators like the European Medicines Agency and, and other SRAs, strict regulatory authorities, and also looking at the situation in terms of trying to improve the overall regulatory capacity, whether it be by harmonization in East Africa or working with the SADC region in Southern Africa. Now, that investment in infrastructure, I do believe that uh, you know, national governments should actually fund that at the end of the day. And I would be very happy for other funding to come into that. But I don't think that it would help the world if we sat back and said, well, if others aren't funding this, you know, we're going to just step back and let the system, which was very imperfect, persist, because that was a critical bottleneck. So we've made some of those investments. I hope that, you know, 10 years hence, the Gates Foundation is not a major funder of the World Health Organization for the reason that the individual national governments that make that up have stepped up and increased their commitments. Thanks, Trevor. I want to ask a couple questions as we near the close of our conversation, looking ahead, the future of global health innovation. So I wonder if you can kind of raise the curtain or take us in the lab, if you will. What are some of the innovations you expect to be coming down the pipeline that you're really excited about? And I should note, they might be more technical innovations, or maybe, um, you know, we often focus on uh, the delivery of innovation, but what about the innovation of delivery more in the realm of implementation science? So what's coming down the pipeline that excites you? Catherine, just on your, on your last point over there. So, you know, the innovation that has excited me most about what we've done in the past is taking a $50 vaccine and making it for $1. So that kind of, you know, manufacturing simplification mm -hmm. and then finding some new channels. There's very interesting opportunities in Africa, for instance, um, around pharmacy channels, you know, that go through different um, sectors as opposed to just the uh, multilateral approaches that we've had. So there's a lot of innovation going on on that side of both delivery and just in the affordability of products, which we should not deem to be lesser innovations because probably that has the greatest impact. But now if we get to the R&D side of things, there are some really exciting developments that we see. Um, mRNAs is, is one of those, actually. 
um, you know, we and others had been investing in that technology for, you know, even before I joined the foundation, there were some investments in that technology. Um, and we see that come now to really proof of principle with, with COVID. But let's just take a couple of areas and I'm gonna have to miss, you know, my teams are gonna hate me for this, but I'm gonna miss some of them. Um, malaria, which we were just looking at this last week, there are some really exciting tools on the vector control side of malaria. Things that are quite simple, uh, attractive toxic sugar baits, where you're able to have a sugar bait for female mosquitoes and introduce a selective toxin, which seems to be remarkably effective in certain geographies and hasn't been widely deployed. And we're looking at first and second generation products over there. The ability to modify uh, invasive mosquito species. There's a real problem with Anopheles stevensi in the Horn of Africa right now, which is a urban-based mosquito. And we may be able to deal with that with some of these new genetic approaches, uh, which people put under the title of gene drive, which in which we can use to eliminate an invasive uh, mosquito species. And that I think is going to move more quickly than what people might have imagined. We see line of sight to the first uh, anti-malarials that look like they'll be highly active in the resistant form of malaria, which has been a problem in Southeast Asia, but we find popping up in some parts of Africa as well. And then, of course, there was the, the great news about the RTSS vaccine that we'd supported for many years uh, for malaria, which is really a proof of principle that you can have an effective vaccine for malaria. And we think now that the second generation vaccines with people are, are very focused on, even as they're rolling out RTSS itself, are gonna be an important part of that whole journey to end in malaria. TB, uh, the, one of the forgotten, you know, even within a, a neglected set of diseases, TB often the one that gets least attention. But finally, we're seeing some active drugs. We had a drug regimen which was uh, effective in four months. The first time we've broken that barrier of six months. We have the M72 TB vaccine, which was more than 50% effective in a significant phase two study. And the planning now is on for a phase three study and to bring that, that product home. And of course, all the diagnostics, the molecular diagnostics and the like that have been deployed for COVID. Lumira uh, is one platform that we've been excited about. We are going to convert that molecular diagnostic platform to testing for TB. And then it's gonna already be introduced at many locations. And we won't have that launch problem of getting it up to speed. On the maternal neonatal health side, this is just a sea change with the, all the new knowledge around the, both the maternal and the infant gut microbiome and how important it is to, to shape that. And it's not just about you know, getting a good meal into every kid and into every mother. It actually matters what the constituencies of that meal are and at what time are they given. So there's another way of doing this. And we're seeing some of the uh, new types of um, directed fooding or, or microbiome directed food products really starting to play an important role. Something as simple as in high income countries, a antenatal ultrasound which people had said, oh, it's going to be impossible to deploy that widely in low infrastructure settings. Well, with the advent of machine learning, now one is able to apply that in a way that we're going to be able to roll this out in very low infrastructure settings, where it doesn't actually essentially matter exactly how you do the scanning on the abdomen, 
because the machine learning algorithm can compensate for any errors that would be made or a large number of errors, not totally any errors, but large number of errors. So we see the applications of AI machine learning coming to bear as well. So I could go on probably for a, a long time with you on this, but um, it is an exciting day. And now we see how these innovations can actually have huge impact when there's urgency and when people are prepared to or have to, they don't have alternatives, they have to deploy these things. Thank you, Trevor. I'm emerging from this with many story ideas. I wish we did have more time um, because there's a lot of ground to cover. Just a final question for you, and I hate to ask such a big question with so little time left, but um, in just a sentence or two, if you can, whether it's recapping something you noted earlier, or perhaps you have a new point to share. You know, we have learned a lot. The global health community has learned a lot. The Gates Foundation has learned a lot over the course of the pandemic. What's one thing you would say in terms of a big lesson that might actually shape the Gates Foundation's future strategy and investments in global health innovation? I think it comes out from some of your questions. It comes out from the Grand Challenges meeting we had around this exercise in democratizing R&D in, in global health. How important it is to engage local scientists and have local capacity to address the problems that have got their different complex dimensions, which are manifest most clearly in that local context. And I think that, you know, as a pathway of how we can empower that network, this characterization I just got yesterday from the Geyser group, this is this global immunology sequencing epidemic response group that uh, we've been funding. In addition to the sequencing, they characterize variants, just got their data from South Africa around the Omicron variant, which is concerning. But um, without that, we are gonna be uh, left at a more theoretical level and we won't have the impact that we need. So it's going to be that local access of interaction that we need to work on and expand. Thank you. We look forward to covering that story, uh, that unfolding story for DevEx. Trevor, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Catherine. My pleasure. Now I'd like to welcome Sarah, Associate Director of Population Health for the Novartis Foundation for any reactions to or reflections on this conversation. So first of all, thank you so much, Catherine, for the opportunity. I'd also like to thank Trevor Mondel for the very valuable insights and perspective that he shared on the status of the COVID vaccine allocation and distribution around the world. Countries and governments have been faced with a very challenging situation in the last two years due to the COVID pandemic. It has required tremendous efforts of multilateral coordination and has tested the global supply chain for vaccine production in a way that was never done before. Unfortunately, despite great efforts to set up COVAX, we're still falling short of reaching populations in developing countries. More than 50 countries have missed the WHO's target for 10% of their populations to be vaccinated against COVID by end of September. In Africa, COVID vaccination rates hover at around 5%. And in comparison, around 70% of the population is vaccinated in Europe. This really shows the stark health inequity that we must address collectively. Developing countries are suffering the brutal economic effects of COVID-19 disproportionately. And COVID has exacerbated inequities around the world. As Mr. Mondale noted, 
many other global health priorities have also lost ground to COVID and have received less attention and funding. He pointed out to tuberculosis as the second killer after COVID and noted how cases are rising due to the, a lack of diagnosis and case finding. Similarly, we're also seeing that cardiovascular diseases, also known as the silent killer and leading cause of deaths globally, is being deprioritized by governments, even though comorbid morbidities such as heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, and chronic diseases were found to be associated with severe forms of COVID-19. The COVID pandemic has substantially slowed down the gains made in cardiovascular disease management and life expectancy, or even reversed them. So as closing remarks, the global, global community should continue focusing on strong multilateral coordination that emphasizes vaccine supply security for all. In addition, there is an urgency to address health inequities that have become more apparent with COVID and to re-examine the impact of social determinants of health with population health approaches. On behalf of the Novartis Foundation, we hope that this dialogue helps you understand where we stand with the COVID vaccine distribution globally, and also shed some light on all the efforts made collectively and lessons learned along the way. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to the Novartis Foundation for underwriting this Newsmaker series. Thanks again to Trevor Mandel and to all of you for joining us. And again, you can join and follow this conversation using the hashtag DevXNewsmaker, and we'll be in touch with a recording that we encourage you all to share.